Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We like to bring someone in here on Fridays and talk about stuff and you need someone who can hold up their end. And I got to tell you, today is special because we have got the Hamilton legend, Hamilton broadcast legend of Hamilton broadcast legends. I, I We cannot do better than this. Connie Smith, legendary broadcast. How are you? I'm fine, Scott. What an introduction. Well, it's true, though. I'm not I, worthy. I, see, I'm sitting here thinking, see, you should be running the show now. You're the uh, you're, you're the pro here. But yeah, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. It's great to be here again, Scott. And really especially is. knowing that we have to get you in now because as soon as this weather turns, you're gone up north to the cottage and we never see you again for months. <laughs> you are you, you become like cottage person as soon as it becomes decent out. Except we sold the cottage, Scott. We did over a year ago now. Really? Yes. It was just the time was right for a whole lot of reasons. And uh, so I'm around a little more, but traveling a little more. I thought I was still seeing, you know, Facebook and that pictures up at the cottage. Well, the memories keep coming. (laughs) They pop up, right? Five years ago. How do you how do you bring yourself to do that? How do you bring yourself to sell? Well, other than the fact that cottages are you know pr- well, a pretty good you, investment right I'll now. I'll tell you, all the kids in our family they've grown up. Um, they have jobs. They weren't coming up again as much as they used to. And um, I, we were up in cottage country twenty three years. We had great, wonderful times. But you're up north. You got all these bedrooms, and it's two of you. You know, we'll have company, but. The time was right, and the cottage was getting older, needed a lot of work, so we thought, you know what, maybe let's do it now and do some travels that we were never Mm. able to do, because when you have a cottage open all winter, you've got to get up there every couple of weeks, make sure the pipes aren't frozen, Mm -hmm. and shovel the driveway, etc. So it was a wonderful chapter. Uh, Dave is very handy, okay. my husband. I'm, I'm I'm handy at helping. Yes, at supervising, <laughs> yes. at bringing a cold beverage nearby. Yes, anytime. I, it is one of the things we have. We've never really uh, years ago. My grandmother owned a cottage up mm. in the Ottawa Valley, and when she passed away, it was just too far, and the family sold it. And so we've never really seriously thought of buying one. But there's always you go up, you rent one in the summer. Right. And if every, you can, if you if can. you can get one, and we always have found one, and there's a great place that we go to. But every year when you get there, it makes you then go on to Realtor.ca. Oh, after, absolutely! Like, you know, we really should buy one of these, and we never do, and we never got serious about it because I think what you just said: when you own it, that's your. You're not traveling. That no, that's your thing. You're there. That's your thing. And you know, it's funny when we first bought our first cottage years ago. We ha- we were living down in the city. We had a nice pool in the backyard. We'd sit there and go, who would want a cottage? And go <laughs> up on a Friday night and the traffic back on a Sunday. Well, we happen to go up north. Um, one thing leads to another. We see this place we happen to look at. And my husband falls in love with it because it reminds him of Australia, where he's from. Well, let's just put a crazy low ball offer in. And then it's accepted. We're going, oh my God, we're these crazy people that are going up Friday and coming back Sunday again. So that led to a second cottage in like 20, 20 odd years later. We, we had wonderful, wonderful times. But but I bet there's one other thing there. that's very different right now. You would not be able to drive by and put in a crazy low ball offer 
and buy a cottage these days. No. The, they, the, uh, the market has changed slightly. Unbelievably so. So we did what we did when we did, and we're here today, and I just got back from two weeks in Mexico. Wow. So. <laughs> no cottage anymore. It's, it's yeah. uh, oh, that's good. No, no, we, we uh, and I don't want to drag, and this is not a whole cottage show, but um, <laughs> we, years ago, the place where we rented the gentleman who owned it was getting older and put it up for sale, and this was... Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, maybe less than 10 years. And the price was, it was five or $600,000. It was a very large lot. And we looked and we went, should we, our family, like split this all up? My parents were still alive. My sister each chip in a couple hundred and we didn't. And then, you know, when COVID drove the price of mm-hmm. cottages through the roof, we looked now and go, that piece of land with 250 feet of shoreline and everything else up in the court, this is probably a two and a half million dollar property now that we weren't smart enough, well, I guess to anticipate a pandemic. <laughs> Coulda, woulda, yeah. shoulda, Scott. Isn't that Coulda, right, though? Coulda, woulda, shoulda. It's just... Um, but we're here now we and here. all is well. And how was Mexico? Where in Mexico Wonderful. Did little town called Zihuatneo on the West Coast. That's Shawshank Redemption. Yes. That's where that's where they went for the Shawshank Redemption. Absolutely. 30 degrees, sunshine, 14 days. I did not even know that was a real place. It's I thought they place. had made up that name in it's the movie. It's a charming, charming little Mexican town. Was Red there? Not that I could oh, see. Okay. <laughs> I don't I, know. I don't know how old he'd be now, though. <laughs> I can't. See, I always thought that was just a, a made-up movie name. I did mm-hmm. not know it really existed. It's real. It's real and really nice, too. Wow. Very authentic Mexican. If you find these, there are these little tiny Mexican places that are away from Punta Cana or, mm-hmm. not Punta Cana, that's Dominican Republic, uh, Porta Plata or all, all these places. You get away from those, it's it's very, I, I don't necessarily love the tourist places, but the real legitimate places, very lovely. Mm-hmm. Walk along the beach, go into a restaurant. Safe. Five, yes, five-minute cab ride into the lovely little downtown, very safe. People are out on the beach, walking the streets all night long, very safe. Very that nice. is, uh, okay, well, now I'm a little jealous. Oh, no, don't be. That's okay. Well, we just got back, too, but I'm still jealous. <laughs> yes, you were away, we too. We were away, too, so, so I can't be go. too jealous, but it no. sounds very lovely. Uh, you you covered everything when you were at CH, so mm. you know all about City Hall and how it works. You saw yesterday that... It was budget day, and they voted on a 5.8, budget increase, second year in a row for that amount. And there seemed to be some relief that it wasn't 14%, as we thought it might originally. be, but originally. But do you, get, do you worry that there comes a point there's a lot of people in this city who, you know, 5.8% is still a lot of money. It's, it works out to be a lot of money, over, especially over two years. I think I really worry, especially now when housing is so difficult, rents are so high, and, well, housing is non-existent for so many people. And then people that just barely get into a home and they have that kind of an increase, yeah, it's, it's that line, right? It is a worry. Is it more of a worry now than it was a decade ago or a generation ago because everything's relative, right? Mm-hmm. But, of course, it's a worry. And um, not an easy task. I mean, you've got all these councillors representing all their own constituents and are beholden to their wishes and the services that they want. I don't, I don't envy the task at all. 
And where do you where do you begin? What is essential? What is not essential? What is essential to you is not maybe essential to me. And you hear everything about, well, we're spending all this money on bike lanes, but people are going hungry and homeless. There's so much that goes on behind the closed doors and committee meetings and through the various departments. I find it very hard to be critical, knowing how difficult a task it is. And um, absolutely, if there's more time to whittle through more of these lines within the budget, line by line, but then the clock runs out, right? Mm. The, The people that I really feel worried about right now in the city, especially because this is not the first year for this, are people who are seniors, especially on a fixed income, because many of them, and I hear this all the time, well, you know, you own a house and it's worth $800,000. Many of them bought their house for $50,000 years and years ago. So yes, they've got a house that's worth all this money, but unless they sell the house, it's not real money to them. It's just theory. And taxes have gone up and up and up. You're paying for a house that is worth all this money, but that's not what you paid. You're not necessarily a millionaire. And now your income is fixed. You're retired and you're getting dinged again and again and again. And I don't, I don't know what they do. I, I don't know what the answer is. If you have family you're lucky mm. that you can reach out to family and friends. I'm I'm really hopeful that these tax increases will start to ebb in the years to come. I mean, the, the whole COVID crisis, everything came to a head like a perfect storm, right? Mm-hmm. And then increase in immigration and foreign students and no one has a place to live. No one has enough food. So we're in a, a tough perfect storm situation right now. I just hope that things will begin to ebb and that next year things will get better and the year after that, after that. You you mentioned a moment ago that it's not easy. There's a lot of people in our business who uh, from CHCH who have dipped their toe into the world of politics. Do you ever think about doing that? Scott, I have been asked to run for every level of government, really? every party, I have covered politics at every level. I covered City Hall. I have covered um, national and provincial leadership conventions and policy conventions. I have thin skin. <laughs> I, you know what? I used to get upset if viewers didn't like my hair or <laughs> what I was wearing or if I mispronounced a word. I, I'm not tough enough. You've got to be one tough cookie to run for politics because it's it's very difficult and your whole life is on display. I admire people who step up to, to, for this role in being a public servant. I couldn't do it. But Scott. when someone comes to you, though, it's it's an it's a stroke to the ego when they say, oh. "Would you like to run?" So did it ever even for five minutes? Did you toy with the idea of, "Well, should I do this?" I I wallowed in the compliment. Of course, <laughs> I did. But and I just very graciously said, "Thank you," but. I would have to decline. And I know people who have stepped in, and because you're a name, you're a face, that's very, very attractive to political parties and people that, that, that want you to run, name recognition and face recognition. And the glory is wonderful. Wow. You know, you go door to door, and then you win on election night, or you might not. Or you might not. But then it's work. It's work. Um, Very few 
colleagues of mine have gone on and stayed longer mm. and longer than than a term or two because it's a lot of work. Has it does has it ever surprised you over the years how many people from the local media have gone into politics? Because no. there's a lot of them. Yes. No, it's not surprised me at all because it's just low-hanging fruit. Oh, yeah, get so-and-so to run. They're going to get lots of votes because, you know, some people go into a voting booth and, oh, I know that name, click. Mm-hmm. Sadly, get me talking about what I think about educating young people about politics, you know, Get me talking about how I believe we should all be mandated to to vote as they do in Australia. I'm a hmm. strict, Are strong you? believer that we should have to vote because it's our civic duty and it works. I know in Australia, where my husband's from, when you have voter turnout rates at 30 odd percent, is that really democracy? But if, you know, if more people vote, because they'd be, I don't know what the, I don't know what the sentence or the fine is for not voting. But I'm telling you, you should, you should vote. You I live agree in a with, country and you should vote. Darn I agree it. with that. But see, here's where you and I differ on that one. Because I, I think it should be the opposite. I think you should actually have to pass the civics test to get a ballot. Well. Because I don't want people who know nothing absolutely. about anything. That's where I get back to education. Yes, yes. In the public school. 100%. In the public school and throughout. I just worry that not enough of our education is relevant to mm. what's going on in the real world right now. So I'm a strong believer in educating in geopolitics and municipal affairs, especially municipal affairs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who else can tell us about what's going on municipally now? Let's segue into what's happening with the media now. But it's true. Educate and then you vote. You know what? You're an expert at this because you just gave me the segue. You've been in this business a long time. Where's this thing going? Where, where do you, do you hold out hope that before you and I are both being laid out in our plot that this business is still going to be around? What's it going to be? I, I have hope. And as I told my students, I tell my students, journalism is not changing. Journalism is the basics of skill and fact-finding and fact-checking, objectivity, and moving the narrative forward to try to promote positive change. That will never change. What is changing is the way we distribute our work and how we distribute it, and the threat of social media. So yeah, we're, I don't like to say at war with social media. In in fact, one of the last courses I taught was journalism and social media, because young journalists have to learn how to use social media. It's a wonderful tool, but they also have to learn the pitfalls. And so it's, it's it's a funny tightrope walk that journalism students have to walk today. Uh, Local news is more important than ever, obviously, and with all the most recent news with BCE and what's happening, it really, I think, helps people see what it would be like if we didn't have local news, because we're going to almost envision that now with the, the weeklies going under and even the, the dailies under threat. So 
I think people are coming to terms with the fact that we need local journalism. We need journalism generally, but specifically we need local journalism, and people are seeking it out. So we're having all these new online companies. Village Media um, now is taking a lot of... One of my former students was just hired by um, Village Media. So... I mean, I start in journalism with typewriters and mm-hmm. film, okay? So, yeah, there's been change all the time. And I, I never thought videotape was going to last. I want my film again. Anyway, um, look where we've gone in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. It's, it's going to be... It's going to be a difficult road ahead, but there always has been in journalism competition between each other, competition with owners and uh, the fact that ownership is such a conglomeration now. When that started happening, I knew things were not going to work out well, but we do not give up hope, Scott, and we look forward to moving through this. You say uh, how people want this, though. The question that I seem to have these days is, I think people do want journalism, but mm-hmm. do are people in 2024 willing to pay for journalism? Are people who are in their 20s now have never really had to because there's always been availability online. No business is going to survive if it doesn't have people to pay for it. Is it are people right. going to pay for it? Well, we've always had to pay for a newspaper, right? And yes, radio, television, sure. I guess you can say it's free in a way, but it's all trickle down, isn't it? Somehow we pay. Whether, whether it's through it's, cable bills or yes, whether it's through absolutely. advertisers or whatever else. Absolutely. Sure. So whether it's um, a subscription or um, however you you put your online business together, everyone has to pay. You go you go to the dentist, you have to pay. You get your car fixed, you have to pay. That's, if you're going to find out what's happening in the world, yeah, you got to pay. That's what we do. That's what happens in a democracy based on capitalism, isn't it? I've always, this is one of the things, this is a bugaboo of mine, but that, that a lot of people will say, I don't want to pay for something online or whatever, but you would never make that argument about Netflix or you would yeah. never walk into a movie theater and say, I'm not buying a ticket. I, I should be able to watch this for free. And exactly. I, I can't tell you how many times in recent years there has been a story just very recently when the five Canadian World Junior Team players were charged mm-hmm. and the Globe and Mail broke the story, there were all kinds of people online, essentially online screaming at the Globe and Mail, this is an important story, you should lift your paywall. And I'm thinking this is the time when you should be saying, I'm willing to pay for this, but it seems there's a real chasm generational perhaps that says I should not have to pay for information. I think it's a misunderstanding of how the system works today. And the fact that if we're lucky enough to live in a country like this, we have to support it together. We have to support free media, um, the, the freedom of expression. Yes, there's a cost to that freedom of expression and, and freedom of information, if you will. But that's just the nature of life, right? You can choose not to subscribe to a newspaper, and you're the one missing out because when you go to vote in an election, you're not informed and you're not making an informed decision. And then if someone gets in who you disagree with, well, who's to blame? 
Oh, all right. Let me be really cynical. Do okay. people care about whether they are informed? I think, let me back that up. I think people want to be informed, but I think a lot of people, the information they want to have is what they want to hear. Absolutely. They don't necessarily want to hear an opinion that they don't share. I'll just turn the channel or flip the page or turn the website off or go somewhere else. If it's something that I don't agree with, it's biased, it's wrong, it's inaccurate, it's whatever. I think we've lost a lot of the ability to say, I'm willing to listen to the other side to maybe get a broader view of what's going on. And that all comes down to education once again and the importance of journalism, the basic tenets of good journalism. And I think it, again, I teach at a community college, but I think more and more um, of the nature of the, the, ne- the necessity of journalism should be taught at lower levels throughout high school, how important information is to get to know the community you live in, the city you live in, uh, the province you live in, and how it affects your life because it's a real symbiotic relationship. It's a two-way street. You know, you you have the right to elect people and vote and make decisions that way. And at the same time, they are subservient to you. They work for you. So it's a very basic understanding of how it works that I think, again, comes back down to education. You work, you teach, you spend a lot of time with younger people who are new in this. Can the media, and I'm doing air quotes, carve through social media, as you described. Because to me, again, social media, for the good things it does, and it does a lot of good things, Mm -hmm. the one thing it also does is you only, again, have to see what you want to see. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know that that's always healthy. In fact, I really believe it's not always healthy to only see what backs up your position. That's why we have this whole disparity going on all over North America. We're polarized because you got people that believe one thing mm-hmm. and only watch and listen to this yep. and people at the other end doing the same. And again, it comes back to education. And I'll tell you, when the first year journalism course intake was stopped in September and again this past January, just the first year, mm-hmm. the second and third years are continuing, we have to retool our courses constantly to create, um, I taught uh, media entrepreneurship because more and more journalists are freelance. I've taught social media journalism because you have to learn about social media. So it's the education process in journalism schools that are constantly changing to keep up with what's going on. And and we track the trends out there. The research is out there. We see what the slippery slope is involving social media. And that's why there's this constant retooling going on to make the courses relevant and to stress the major tenets of, of good journalism and the importance of it. I have more of my students, Scott, I'll tell you, say, oh, I think I want to do sports or entertainment or travel. I don't want to do news. It's too depressing. Mm. And I say... You are the one that is in the driver's seat to change all that. You are in a place where you can make positive change by the stories you tell. And not by just going over all the bad news that's going on right now, but move the narrative forward. Who is doing something to make it better? That is power. And if you have the power to affect positive change like that, 
I mean, that's pretty rewarding in itself, and you're really doing some, some, some good work for your community and your society. And again, one of the things, sort of an, uh, a niche that you carved out for yourself was good news stories. This is one of those funny things that people have a weird relationship with, because I'll tell you before I get to it, um, at The Spectator, with most places, you can see who's clicking on different stories or whatever else. And we hear constantly from people, oh, you, I love, I wish you'd do more good news stories. I wish there was more good news stories. And then you look at what is driving the most engagement online, fire, murder, assault, car wrecks. It's what people say they want and maybe even believe they want, and yet what they actually seem to want are two very different things. But people do always say they want good news stories. Whatever they think that means. Yes. To me, good news stories isn't just, oh, they got that little cat down off the tree. (laughs) You know, although one of the stories that got the most reaction that I'd ever done aside from 9-11, of course, mm-hmm. was uh, Joe Bananas, a circus chimp who was confiscated at the border. No one would, knew what to do with this circus chimp. SPCA wouldn't take him. Nobody would take him. And like, oh, my God, people were going crazy. What's going to happen to Joe Bananas? People were calling. And what's happening, Connie? So we all did these updates. Finally, we found a retirement home for Hollywood actor animals in Waldo, Florida, Went down to Waldo, Florida with Jerry Boylo, my legendary camera guy, and did a follow-up story on Joe Bananas living his final days out in Waldo, Florida. Sitting by the pool, sipping drinks oh, with yeah, umbrellas. Yeah, yeah. And, so yeah. Joe was fine. But the, the point of the matter is, when I say good news, it's finding the positive to move forward out of a negative situation. So you have a tragedy. I'll I'll never forget a a terrible fire happened just before Christmas many, many years ago, and we were criticized for putting the story on. That's terrible. This poor family, and you interviewed them. They're so sad, invading their privacy like that. Well, you know what happened two or three days later? Because we shared that story of need, that family had a new Christmas tree, in their home, a place to live, presence under the tree for everyone involved. Hmm. Because by sharing stories, you find good things can happen and you make good things happen. So you remember um, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yeah, Fred Rogers, yep. Always happy, happy, happy. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked him once, you know, it's not always happy, right? Um, what if something sad happens? And I guess Mr. Rogers, Fred, referred to something his mother had told him once. You know, when something bad happens, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers. So this is what I preach with journalism students and anyone I talk to about good news. Yeah, it's bad that this horrible thing happened. Well, who's doing something about it? And let's move the story forward. All of a sudden, oh, wow, they're doing that? Well, maybe I can help. Maybe we could do something else. So you're inspiring others to jump on board hmm. to create a better situation. So when I say good news, it's finding the positive way through and focusing on that as you tell the story instead of just replicating a news release about something awful happened, which you never just do a news release. Right. Like, what's the next step, right? So find someone 
that's the dynamic aspect of that story. There is also a, and not to get too deep on a Friday evening, but there is a deep philosophical principle that says if you've never lost a game, you can't appreciate winning a game. If nothing bad has ever happened to you, you can't appreciate when something good happens. And so it may stink to be the family that lost their house in a fire, granted, but there's a side of it, then you can be appreciative or, as you say, find the others. All right, so there's that. But you, I'm sure, when you're doing a program called Always Good News, there have been people who have probably thought, oh, that just means she's doing fluff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what mm-hmm. is the difference between good news and fluff? Or is there? I don't know that there is, really. I think if you can lift the psyche of a community, of an audience, one way or the other, isn't that a positive thing? Whether it's saying that... Um, there was a reunion between a mother and son that hadn't seen each other in so many years after a terrible fire. Okay. Or whether it's that little kitty cat that that firefighter went out of his way to rescue it. Don't we all need our mood lifted? Don't we all need to feel more positive, more energetic, more energized, more motivated? So is there a difference? Maybe not. Maybe just the term fluff kind of insinuates something that doesn't matter. It's meaningless, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But I don't like that word because I think everything that happens matters to someone somehow. And by sharing those stories, which good journalism is, you are, sure, sharing a need. But when you share a need or a problem, all of a sudden people that are in a position to do something about it can Mm -hmm. come together and do something about it. Whether it's just making someone smile or actually activating an army of people to fix something. You, you mentioned a few minutes ago about students and, and you know how they don't want to do news because it's so depressing. And, and, and I, I, I wanted to go back to that because I, I really think there is something here. News can be depressing. Mm-hmm. There's no question it can be depressing. Mm-hmm. But even a hard news story can be a happy story, ultimately. There's a possibility for... Not every, just because the word news is applied doesn't mean negative. It starts with the same letter, same two yes. letters, but it doesn't necessarily mean news has to be no, negative. No, You can lay out different scenarios of a particular possible outcome. You just don't always have to look for the negative. And I know there's that whole theory that um, people just want the bad news, right? They just want to know about the fire, you know, the fires and the car accidents whatsoever. Um why is that? You know, that's that's quite a rhetorical question. Well, see, Why? I think I think the answer is, part of the answer is I think it's they say with acting that to be a dramatic actor is difficult to be a comedic actor is much more difficult mm-hmm. even though they don't get respect for. It. I think doing good news stories is way harder honestly than doing bad news stories because the possibility for it to be so over-the-top schmaltzy and terrible, if you don't do it right, mm-hmm. it, it, the risk is there, and then people just go, oh, that's ridiculous. It, it is harder, I think, to do well a good news or a happy story in the news. It takes a little more digging, a little more research. Finesse, of, nuance. Absolutely. A lot of it is in the writing, yes. right? And that's a skill that you acquire after years of, of, of being a journalist. But I, I I just, labels sometimes don't do us any good, do they, mm. Scott? Labels can no, be I, very, very 
we we got to we got to take a break here. But no, I I I maybe it's just me. I can see through immediately when someone is trying to wring my emotions, mm-hmm. and I get jaded almost by that. I almost That's get turned off. Yeah, I almost get turned mm-hmm. off by that. If you can make me watch something and feel good, and I at the end feel like I was not taken advantage of, but you can still empathize. But I still empathize. That is when a story has been well done. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Connie Smith is in. You know who Connie Smith is. I am sure if you've lived in this area for any time at all, you've probably watched her on CHCH for years. Uh, You've watched her elsewhere. You may be a student of hers. You've been to an event that she has emceed. I don't know. There's many other things you've done. People have seen you somewhere, Connie. So thanks for coming in. Thanks for doing this. Happy to be here, Scott. It's, um, you've done, how many, what different things did you do? You, you did obviously anchoring at CHCH. You did reporting news, mm-hmm. um, sports. Produced, uh, here's a little story. Well, on the news at noon, we had a sports cast. Sports was never my forte. Okay. A little story when I was at Mohawk College, we started CHMR radio with Bill Kelly and Doug Faraway and a bunch of guys. Um, I had to read something and I read the word gritterin. Oh, Grit- gritter. Is that a gritter? Gritter. Yeah. And when I did sports um, at CHCH, I do a sports cast at noon and all these hockey players with these names and I'd ask the director, could you just please say that name one more time for me? Because yep. so yes. Hey yes. Les Nesman got I... Chai Chai Rodriguez. So, you know, it's not uh, <laughs> There you go. You're you're in good standing. He won a Buckeye Newshawk Award. How many times you there could you, you know, you could be in there. I I, I laughed when uh, Neil Lumsden um, was on The Amazing Race Canada mm-hmm. years ago. One of the things that they had to do, and my memory is, you know, a little fuzzy on this, but one of the challenges was they had to race to TSN and do a reading, and you had to read it, and, and they had the, the, the teleprompter, but they had intentionally thrown in some really, really difficult names. And the whole challenge was you had to read it, and if you stumbled over it, you had to go and start all over again. And if there were people waiting, you had to go to the back of the line. And I remember one of the names was um, uh, Jonas Valanchunas, which nobody, it doesn't look like that at all. And nobody could get it's It's, you know, it's not easy. Cold reads on telecue are always a challenge. But you know what? You are, so you may not be, or you weren't at one time, the sports person, but you are involved in something that is sporty. Yes. Go figure. This is through Interval Interval House. Tell us about this. Well, Interval House of Hamilton, in partnership with the Hamilton Tiger Cats, is presenting the Power of Prevention fundraising event February 27th at Tim Hortons Field Stadium. Which means what? What is what is this? What is it? Okay. Interval House of Hamilton is an emergency shelter for women and children fleeing domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So we offer safety, security, and sanctuary counseling. We help people through the court system. We help them find jobs and a home. But on the other side of this, we are working very hard at violence prevention. So what if we could stop violence from infiltrating society in the beginning and driving women and children to our doors in the first place. So we have a very strong training program in in gender-based violence prevention. We have found that partnering with sports is a huge advantage because 
coaches have proven to be the number one influence on the social and, well, development of young people. So we have partnered with the Tiger Cats, who came on board with this. Uh, many of the Tiger Cats have taken the training. We have trained the Huskies, Kilty Bees. I know the Bulldogs were involved. The Bulldogs. Yeah. So we have a very strong partnership. We're going into schools and training sports teams through our mentorship programs, uh, be beyond a bystander, and um all this is working. We are going to be celebrating with a lot of the young athletes, coaches, managers, and mentors. We're going here be hearing testimony about how it's changed them as people hmm. in the way they act and talk and how they would not just stand by if they heard something inappropriate or saw something inappropriate. So this event is going to be 4.30 till 7 o'clock. We are going to be hearing from um, all kinds of um, sports leaders and sports celebrities. Tony Gabriel is going to be there, Jason Riley, Mike Morreale, the great Jim Taddy from TSN Radio is going to be there. It's a real celebration of the power of violence prevention working through sports organizations, basically. And we've got um, tapas. We've got all kinds of silent auction prizes. And um, we're all going to take an oath to be a Steel City ally because the statistics are there. I mean, I've got numbers here, Scott, to just prove how bad violence is. I mean, it's an epidemic across Canada. And sadly, Hamilton, it's way up there. The highest incidence of partner violence per 100,000 people. Hamilton. In Hamilton. In Hamilton, Scott. And we know the boys who witness violence against their mothers are five times more likely to become abusers. And we know the girls who witness it are more likely to become victims. So the idea behind this is then not necessarily that you're tying in with sports teams because sports people in sports are more likely to be violent. That's not the no. issue, I don't think. It's the opposite. It's getting involved with um, a culture of, of young people and athletes who can learn at this time how to really be leaders when it comes to creating a more peaceful society for families down the road. I was kind of surprised... And not, but kind of surprised when you said that coaches are the, the people who have the greatest influence because I think, you know, parents and teachers yep. and friends and all the rest. Yes. And yet there's, there is some sense, I, I mean, if you're a good coach, I, I, although I suppose influence could go either way. You could be a terrible influence oh, sure. and have a huge impact or you could be a great influence. And that's and why it. we work with the coaches. We teach the coaches who teach the students. But the fact is, teenage years, do they really want to listen to their parents and teachers? Would they be more likely to listen to a coach in a locker room before a big game? There's a relationship there that's proven to be really, really strong. Mm. And and just the culture of involving something that's positive and, and it's active and you're involved and you're in a team. And working together as a team is a very powerful dynamic when you want to share some ethics and, and, and share a way of looking at the world. Mm and a way of looking at each other and treating each other. Coaches also have a power that parents and teachers don't now, I think, and that is if you're playing on a team, presumably it's because you enjoy the sport. Mm -hmm. Coaches have the control over whether you get to play. There is a hammer, and it doesn't have to be a, 
hammer of crushing your skull. It's a hammer of you, you're either going to participate and try and behave and do well, or you're not going to get on the field or you're not going to get on the ice. Teachers can't really do that now. Parents can, but again, are you going to listen to them all the time? I think coaches have this, it's a potential for positive thing. It's the one area where you can pull back or allow more of there, there's a, the, the carrot there the coaches have is unique in our society right now with kids. And by making, creating a, a strong athlete is part of becoming a, a good person and they're entwined like that. Can be, should And be. you want in, you know, you want to uh, impress your coach. You're going to say, wow, I, I, I like what he's saying. I, I can do this. Do you think there's, do do we know if the people who are participating, and again, I'm not necessarily talking adults, if the tie cats, as you mentioned, but with kids, do we know if there is real buy-in with this program or are the kids who have to participate in this going, oh, okay, we got to sit through this thing, but like, do we, do we know if it's connecting? Well, we do because what we will be presenting that night is a video. We've gone to a couple of practices, a couple of teams, and we've talked to the young athletes. And you'll hear what they have to say about it. And it's really been life-changing. When you hear them say how it's changed the way they think and feel and, 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 and how they, you know, so many young people are so stuck to their phones right now, mm. their headphones on all the time. These teachings are an awareness teaching. What is going around on around me? Maybe I should pay attention. And that that is that is one of the nuances of what we're doing in trying to create a whole different approach, a whole different culture in sports and in greater society through well, our teaching. We mentioned last hour and it was not about this. It just happened that we brought it up. The you know the story about the Hockey Canada unfortunate situation with the the five adults now who have been charged, um, you know, and, and so w- whether people listening are thinking whatever, or e- even if one person, I guess, were to get something out of this and were to learn something, we say this with a lot of things, but that would be a positive. Absolutely. Because you can see what the alternative can be. And violence isn't just related to sport, right? No. I mean, domestic violence, is it's increasing. It's on the increase in this enlightened world of ours. A lot of factors to blame for that. Social economic pressures, you know, political pressures. Um, but it is prevalent in all sectors of society. Mm-hmm. And Interval House of Hamilton is actually moving into union halls as well. Mm. We're working with Leuna. So we're going into workplaces, we're going into schools, and we're going into sports teams and sports clubs to create a, a grassroots, organic way of looking at our world and each other in our, in our society. It's, uh, okay, so Tuesday, February 27th, so yes. not Tuesday coming up, but the following the 27th, Tuesday. But if you want to buy tickets, we have limited tickets available, but please buy soon so we can make sure we have enough food for you. And all you have to do is visit intervalhousehamilton.org slash events. Okay. Look for us. Follow us on, on social media. We've got 
Again, some wonderful silent auction and raffle prizes. A great night. And we're going to do games. We've got like mini football tosses. We've got Plinko. And we've got various sports hosts who are going to be interacting with people. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it's going to be a celebration, Scott, of what we're doing. And Interval House of Hamilton has become a trailblazer in gender-based violence prevention. I mean... Someone's got to do this. We yes. can't keep going on with killings and murders and assaults. So someone's got to start, and we're doing it, and we're doing it really well mm. with young people at a very impressionable age. Uh, we're going to make it even easier, intervalhousehamilton.org. You don't even need to hit events. You can get to it through that page. You'll find it from that main page, so just so people can find it easier. Yes. Intervalhousehamilton.org if you are interested. Buy uh, your tickets now, today, <laughs> tonight, and I'll see you there. Connie, you mentioned, see, this is how I know you're a professional broadcaster. You have dropped references to like five things that I was going to talk about to sprinkle the seeds before we get there. So everyone goes, oh yeah, she knew what we were talking about. No, she has no idea what we were going to talk about. You mentioned how you used to pound away on typewriters back in the day. Typewriters, apparently like vinyl records, typewriters are having a renaissance. People are now looking and going, I like the sound, the feel, the idea of clacking away on typewriters. Would you ever want to go back to typing on a typewriter again? I had a little orange portable typewriter that I took with me my first co-op job when I was at Mohawk writing for the federal government and I took that with me in the train and it got lost when my internship was over and it just killed me. I would love it. Would you? Yes, I would love it. the, The sound of a newsroom. Mm. Typewriters, teletype, ripping and wire, you know, rip and read. That's gone now. It's a very quiet it's place. It's very quiet. Newsrooms, well, if they exist mm. even, but those few that do exist are very quiet places. So, yes. It was it was always surprising to me in more recent years, and I'm not insulting anyone in, in the business, but you're right. It, newsrooms have been very quiet, uh, very loud in the past. And now the people who are coming into the business, if you're making any noise, they're like, can you please be quiet? I'm working. And they all have to wear headsets. Uh-huh. And like, we'd be shouting uh, the no other kidding. end of the room. No kidding. I can't tell you. Know this? I can't tell you how many stories I've written at a game in the press box with speakers four feet in front of my head blaring ACDC right before Absolutely. deadline. And you're like, you just block it out. You figure it out and how to do it. But I... I mean, I just don't know that I would, I can't, I don't know how the people once upon a time, the sports writers especially or others, I don't know how they composed great copy because there's no, when I'm writing, I'm cutting and pasting and moving stuff around and rearranging. You, that's not what you were doing on a typewriter back in the day. You, oh, no. It was tr- your thought and it poured out and that's what it was. And that's what it was. And five sheets of carbon paper because yep. you needed all those copies of a script and, um, well, and then the typewriters advanced to the fact that they could erase. That yes. They, they got kind of automated. Yes. Whoa, this is really high tech. Yep. And then they just went away. But I, it just, to me, the people who were the great writers of type of the typewriter era, to me, were way more talented than people like me or anyone else who has the opportunity to move stuff and edit stuff and change stuff. Because you just had to figure it out in your head and you got one, I mean, you could do it over if you wanted, but basically got one shot at it. True, true. I I remember I was a good news reporter at CFRB way back when. And um, Gordon Sinclair, I went in and watched him while he 
did his news. And I could not believe his script. It was a piece of paper, and there were scratches and arrows. And I'm thinking, how does he read this? But that's what you would do. Mm-hmm. You'd have your script, but then you'd mark it all up if you didn't have time to retype it. But he did it, and it was absolutely incredible. But it made you think, you know, because you you just had to really focus on what you were doing because it was all over the place. But um, it's been quite an evolution, really. It has. It has. And and I just, I I don't, I guess I don't quite understand, I I don't understand why vinyl has come back as it has. I get that there's some people who like it, but it's it's a huge industry again now. And I'm certainly having a hard time understanding why the typewriter I'd is... I'd like a little one. I'd, I'd love like to have one on display, an old-fashioned yeah. one. And I would probably even clack away at it here and there. But to actually use it for real work, I, isn't this why we have technology it so is. we it is. improve? I, I think a lot of um, people that write novels and, and books actually prefer a typewriter because it's there and you have that manuscript in your hand. I, I'm quite sure many still do that. But sure, you've got to embrace technology. It's like I always say, if a steamroller is coming at you, you either put your hands up and try to stop it or you jump on board. Mm. So yeah, we all have to jump on board with changing technology, but it's nostalgic. That's what it is. Well, and think of now, you're, I mean, you're an instructor in, in college. Imagine now instead of kids having their keyboard open with their Mac someone brings a typewriter into your class while you're yeah, talking that would be and a is little typing different. them. <laughs> yeah, that, that would not compute. <laughs> that, I, I would actually love to see someone do that. Some kid bring a giant typewriter into yes, a class yes. and take notes on it. I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to even think where you would buy one now. I don't even know. Where, I mean, a secondhand shop, I guess. Yeah. I, apparently, there is a store somewhere in Hamilton on the mountain that sells typewriters. Really? A shoe repair I go to told me. Go figure. They had a friend. It's uh, yeah, typewriters making a comeback like so many other yeah. things from once upon a time, I guess. It's only a matter of time. I mean, w- when we heard from the environment minister this week that they were going to stop building roads in Canada, or at least that was a theory, and someone was saying, yeah, well, when you're gobbling your mead while riding your horse and buggy, it does seem we are not really going back to those days, but there's a there's an appeal in a lot of people's minds of going back to something simpler, whether it's practical or whether once you try it, you really like the idea. There is certainly an appeal to simpler things. There is an appeal. And if you listen to people talk about peak oil, we did a documentary, my husband and I, on Robert Bateman, the Mm. wildlife artist who incidentally happened to be my high school art teacher way back then. And we visited him on Salt Spring Island, and he's quite an environmentalist and a naturalist. And, and he predicts that we will be going back to that kind of a lifestyle where we're more, our, our farms are more autonomous, so that instead of massive fields of wheat with all the GMO and everything else, you'll have vegetables here and maybe a little this here, and you'll have some chickens here. He predicts we're going back to that. So there's nostalgia, but I think there's also the sense that maybe we are all going back into a simpler time where we'll be more self-reliant and not so dependent on global travel and and, and mass manufacturing. Who knows? Well, and I'm not, yeah. I mean, I was going to say it would be interesting to see if they would try something like that. And then I realized, well, they do. It's called a kibbutz. They do it in Israel all the time. They have something like this Mm -hmm. or other, you know, and I'm sure there are similar things all over North America where people have got a piece of land and they live together and 
grow what they grow and that kind of thing. But it's, um, and I'm sure they use typewriters. I bet they do. <laughs> I bet they do, Scott. <laughs> well, let's take a very quick. Well, you know what? Before we take a break, I just want to get to something here because uh, we don't normally do this, but we were talking about last hour, what's going to happen with the media. And uh, a listener who was listening, Lori, um, has asked for a follow-up on this one. I thought, well, while you're here, because she goes, she's loving what you're saying. The media continually over-reports on scary topics, COVID and weather and stuff like that. I don't know. She goes, what, why do they do that? And, and how do you fix that? Over-reports. Well, there's two things at play here. Uh, people aren't watching or listening all the time. So maybe someone heard something on this half hour, but you have to update because we have a 24-hour news cycle now. So you're constantly updating and the audience is constantly changing because Lori may be on one channel and then she'll be on her phone. So because there's so much competition for your attention and the audience is so segmented, there is a need for um, content producers to update, update stories, um, repeat stories, because the cycle is nonstop. There is, though, I don't think there's any doubt, especially with weather. When you turn into CNN or whatever, when there's going to be a hurricane, there is what people call weather porn. There, there is, <laughs> there is a, there is a thing where it, they know it's going to drive ratings. You put, you put yes. that person out holding onto a flagpole in a hurricane yes. and for whatever reason, I've never understood the whole hurricane I know. thing. There's We're, excitement. There's watching someone get angst, wet. Angst. As a former weather girl in two markets up in Barrie and here where I had to write backwards on a big plexiglass board, I can tell you the weather is popular. We led with it at CKVR. You had Barry. to do that backwards writing like um, yes, I did. Bill Lawrence? Yep. Grease <laughs> with grease pencils. Yeah. Suns and clouds were fine, but numbers get a little tricky. But um, weather affects everybody too, right? And I don't think the statistics have changed that much from the little bit of weather education I I had. Beyond 24 hours, it's 50-50, really. Mm. I mean, it's all... Systems are moving all, all the time at different speeds, so you never know. So people care about the weather... I agree, though. I agree. If you you stand by a television station or you're online for one place too long, and it does get a little repetitious. I've never understood the 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 fascination with watching Bob the Weatherman stand out in a hurricane and just get <laughs> wet, and why this is so, you know. And and the funny thing is, they're always standing on a beach where the tide has yes. not really come in. They go, well, it's really picking up here, and it's like, well, no, it's the same as it was twelve minutes ago. Well, there's a saying in television when all the live capability was there, Mm. you do it because you can. Did you ever have to do that? Oh, all the time. Well, nothing's happening behind me now, but a few hours ago or in an hour from now, because you can. But did they ever have, were you ever the one sent out into the storms? Uh, Was I doing weather then? I don't think I ever did a storm. I've been in the middle of some pretty nasty things, but I don't think a storm... (laughs) A different kind of storm in the different, newsroom. Different yeah. kinds of storms. Yeah, I've, I've hidden behind trees during police shootouts and and sat around a bathtub where a boa snake was supposed to be coming out of a drain. Nice. So pretty exciting, dynamic things, but I didn't get wet or windblown. Two days ago was Valentine's Day, Connie. Where I'm going to give you three choices. There were three great stories online this week. 
real stories of things people did to play pranks for Valentine's Day. Which one you like best or maybe should not have been done? The one of them was in Michigan where a guy's friends took out a giant billboard saying, call this number if you want to have a Valentine with his picture <laughs> as, as giant loser boy who couldn't get a Valentine's date. Now, it turned out okay. He got a whole bunch of Valentine's dates as a result of this, but I don't know that if I would want my friends to do that. The next one was in uh, China, apparently, where some people played a prank by buying every second movie ticket in a movie theater so couples couldn't sit together. They pre-bought every second seat so you could only sit by yourself on Valentine's Day. And this last one was um, uh, in England where a firm of funeral directors sent Valentine's Day cards to residents of a care home (laughs) to just say happy Valentine's. And I guess... Not, er- not everyone in the care home was thrilled that the funeral directors were reaching out as a, hey, get to know us kind of thing. Wh- which one do you, which one was the clever one there? Um, I like the one where the friends put his face on a billboard, especially because it had a happy ending, Scott. <laughs> yes. The funeral home one, tacky, tacky PR. I think that's PR that's going to backfire big time. Yeah, I'm I I got I these are always things where I wonder who was in the board meeting when someone said, "I've got a great idea." And yeah. no one said, "Maybe we should think about this one." It always goes back. This is my Hogan's Hero story. I'm still never I can never understand how somebody went to a network and said, "I've got a great idea for a sitcom." It's a bunch of Nazis and they're going to be holding a prison camp. And somebody at the network said, that sounds hilarious. I, I've th- So any decision now is the Hogan's Heroes decision. This sounds like a Hogan's Heroes decision. Absolutely. I mean, never say never. You can never predict. But yeah, someone, uh, I'm not sure how I would react if my ailing parent was in a home oh, and got a Valentine's yeah, card yeah, from a that, funeral home. That's one of the courses I taught with journalism students is PR, public relations, yes. because it's such a... Synergy, right? Reporters, journalism, working with um, PR people. And yeah, the difference between good and bad PR. Yeah. Why is it, and you may disagree with my basic premise, but why is it that so many people who are in PR are bad at their job? Because I really believe that. I think there are Mm. great PR people. I believe there are fantastic PR people. Mm Mm-hmm. But I really believe that an awful lot of people who are in that world don't quite get what they are, what their role is. And maybe media relations, I'm even specifying it more, should be media relations, but. Well, I think a lot of journalists go into yes. public relations. A lot of journalism students go yes. into PR, which I think is a really good trajectory because in journalism, you know what people need. And if someone calls you and you want a statement, it's not like, well, there's no comment. It's not like, well, we'll get back to tomorrow. You would then know, well, I need to answer right away because there's no there's no time that's allowable yep. in our 24-hour um, news cycle. But, um, yeah, 
I, I can't factually say that there are more bad PR people than good PR people. I happen to know a lot of good PR people. I think people. there are a lot of good ones. I think and, there are a lot of good and ones. And you judge but... that by they're on the ball. They get back mm-hmm. to you. Right. They understand. I mean, um, if, if you can get back to me uh, about the fire that happened at your plant, um, I'm going to remember that, and we're going to have a really good relationship. And the next time you want a nice little story about your plant – I'm there for you. Yep. So the whole idea of developing positive relationships between journalists and PR people is really important. And I think it benefits both industries that way to understand what each other needs to do. It's an interesting thing because I was talking to someone who was at university not long ago and they were taking a PR course and one of the really, and it was PR slash media relations. Mm-hmm. And one of the really interesting things that they were telling me is the professor, now this may be unique. It was very clear that the view of what public relations and media relations should be is protecting the, the shield as opposed to providing information. The media is the bad guy. You must protect the company because the media only wants to get you. And I, I, I thought, is that really where no, we are right now? No, that's old school. That, that is old school. Um, I think... A whole new approach in I know in teaching public relations and journalism is a mutual respect for what each other is doing, and there's a lot of um, parallels. Good writing is necessary. Factual writing, objective to a point writing. I mean, there are a lot of parallels mm-hmm. between the two industries. Yes, you work for a company, but you represent that company. But your constituents, your stakeholders, your audiences are vitally important. You want to keep them happy. And the media is your conduit to so many of your audiences. So I I think in recent times there's been a whole elevation in the whole field of public relations for sure and the relationship with journalism. Yeah, I I, I would say that... personal experience, anecdotal experience, those who are really good at it Mm -hmm. are better now than they ever were before. Because they know. Because they know. Those who are not good at it are worse now than they ever were before. And you know what? Maybe that's in every profession now that we're seeing a gap because the people who really are excellent stand out because, and I don't, you know. And it's new ways of thinking, right? New ways of thinking, new approaches to the job. Yes. There's a constant evolution in, in every industry. And and being mindful of a two-way conversation with your audiences is so important. You're yeah. not just putting stuff out. You want to know what your your viewers and your readers think. And you, not your viewers, your yeah, listeners. Yeah, well, well, sometimes your viewers. Who knows if they're peering in the window yeah. and I'm not seeing them <laughs> right now. Go. If they're There's stalking. Maybe. <laughs> But the point is, it's a two-way dialogue, and every successful business, whether it's media, whether it's public relation, has to maintain that dialogue. Uh, Connie, once again, just before we go, uh, tell people about the Interval Houses event that you've got coming up a week from Tuesday. I would love to invite you all to join me. I will be hosting this along with my co-host, the Cat offensive lineman, Coulter Woodmancy is going to be my co-host. Uh, it's going to be You're both. half his size, you know. I know. Less. I'm going to be looking <laughs> way up at him, and I don't know You are how the size of one of his legs. <laughs> I know. He's six foot five. But I'm so looking forward to working with him and celebrating the work that we're doing at Interval House of Hamilton in gender-based violence prevention, partnering with all our Hamilton sports teams to make for safer families down the road. Intervalhouse.org. 
org if you want to get tickets. Uh, Connie, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for coming it's in. It's been fun, Scott. We covered a lot of ground. We did, and we've got to do this again. It's been a long time, but uh, now that you are uh, cottage-free, we can maybe try and find, you know, more than once every 12 years. Sounds Something good like to that. me, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.